Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome to the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this Monday, the 10th of February. Uh, Maybe you are feeling a little anxious this morning. Maybe you are worried about your kids, no matter their age, your parents as they age. Maybe you're worried as you drive to work. Maybe there's some anxiety related. I've just been exposed to this thing called the Sunday scaries. Apparently, people are actually like, they have this growing anxiety as, as Sunday um, uh, as Sunday, you know, moves hour to hour toward Monday, that people actually have this anxious response to um, to Monday coming. So maybe you have some anxiety related to work this week. Um, maybe you are a little bit worried about that um, nagging ache. Maybe there's a maybe there's a maybe it's not even a persistent pain. Maybe it's intermittent. Maybe it's that you know you feel that weird thing from time to time and. Now it's got you it's sort of gnawing in the back of your mind. Like, I wonder what that is. Maybe that's worse than, uh, maybe that's worse than just a, you know, a pensioner or, or maybe it is a pensioner. I don't know. Anyway, so you get the, you get the idea here. Uh, maybe you've got uh, an issue with a coworker or your neighborhood HOA. Um, you know, you probably can't put up signs and flags if you live in a neighborhood and you might want to put up a sign or a flag this, this year, or somebody else may want to put up signs or flags. Like, hmm, those, th- those things um, close to home. I mean, you know, frankly, maybe it is you're at odds with somebody in your knitting circle or uh, or your women's Bible study, right? I mean, I get it. I get that there are relational and physical and financial and emotional reasons. That, that list is probably insufficiently long. Um, that we experience worry and anxiety. And so we're tempted to imagine that we're bad Christians if we are anxious about anything, because after all, um, we, you know, we totally know and embrace from Philippians chapter four that we're to be anxious for nothing, uh, that in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we're going to let our requests be made known to God. And God is then going to give us his peace, which surpasses all understanding. And it's going to guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then this doesn't, this is not what the passage says, but this is what we imagine to be true. Then we're never going to experience anxiety or worry again. Now, that's actually, that, that's actually not what the passage says. It says that when you experience anxiety, when you experience worry, or when you experience worry, maybe don't allow it to grow into anxiety, don't grow anxious, but at that point, like, pray. Go before God with a thankful heart, recognizing who God is. Let your request be made known to him. Receive the peace that he offers. Let that sort of replace that anxiety. Um, And then invite God to, like, guard your heart and mind against those future attacks based on that same thing. Now, you and I worry a lot about a lot of things. And so um, it will be fruitful for us to have a conversation with an expert who is working in this field every single day. Her name is Jean Holthouse. She has written a book entitled Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. 
She is from Pella, Iowa, where they hold a tulip festival every year. And she is with me next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Joining me now, uh, Jean Holthouse. She has uh, more than 25 years of experience providing therapy. She works as a clinician. She manages two clinics for Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services. She lives in Pella, Iowa, and she is here today to talk about her new book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. Jean, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Welcome. I thank you for having me. Well, no, I'm well. I appreciate that people welcome us. So I thank you so much for that. I I, I respond positively to that um, to that welcome into your space today as well. Um, Christians deal with anxiety and worry just as much as everybody else does. So let's let's start with um, just going ahead and setting aside the idea that if I'm a good Christian, I am going to be anxious for nothing and I am never going to worry about anything. Yeah, we need to set that one aside because our bodies are are actually made so that, and, and they're made by God, and they're made so that we will have times where we experience anxiety because it's part of what keeps us healthy in some ways. It's what happens along that continuum of anxiety that can be a problem. But if we didn't have anxiety when we, or experience anxiety when we like saw a snake or when a baby <laughs> approaches the top of a stairway, we'd actually be harmed. So God did create us to experience a natural anxiousness when there's something to be afraid of. The trouble is we have trouble knowing when that is and when it's not. So let's talk about that. Is there a difference between healthy and unhealthy anxiety and worry? Yeah, there is. Um, if you're talking about healthy anxiety, it's actually a response to an external stimulus. So it's something outside of ourselves that actually poses a risk to us. So if I'm driving down the highway and a car veers into, into my lane of traffic, I'm going to have a healthy, anxious response. I'm going to My body's going to move into that fight, flight, freeze um, sort mm. of phase. And that's actually what's going to help, help me to respond in a very, very appropriate way, very, very rapidly. If I had to stop and think in that moment, it would take too long. So my body instinctually responds to keep me safe. And that's that healthy sort of anxiety. When we're facing something that, that is real, it's outside of ourself, and it helps us to know how to respond to it. If we didn't have a little bit, bit of test anxiety, we wouldn't study for the test. Um, so those that's healthy anxiety, but then it can move past that into kind of what we would call worry, that place where we're fretting about something that hasn't happened yet. Um, and we're thinking about all the what ifs. And that's the place where scripture is talking about, we have to kind of learn a pattern of what, what to do with that. Um, because in that place, we're actually trying to play God instead of trusting God. And it can actually even go one step beyond that. There is a group of people who develop anxiety disorders, which are actually chemical problems within their body, which causes their body to be in that fight, flight, freeze place, either unexpectedly when there's nothing going on or all of the time. And that requires medical intervention. So there's a continuum. So I read um, one, two, three, four, five headlines this morning, uh, all kind of on this topic. And I suspect they all contribute to this second kind of anxiety, which is future events that haven't happened yet, but they tend to create a feeling in me that makes me worry. So I'm just going to read them. Fear and anxiety rise as coronavirus spreads and death count rises. 
overwhelming and terrifying the rise of climate anxiety. For Gen X women grappling with anxiety and sleepless nights uh, of midlife angst, uh, why people get the Sunday scaries, and then the thought of the 2020 election outcome is literally making people sick. And Mm -hmm. it occurred to me that um, when you talk about those things that are happening to me in an immediate situation and I am having a very healthy, anxious response to those, um, it is something that I can affect the outcome of. Um, I can intervene in that moment. And that is good. And that is uh, that's the way God wired us. When I begin to obsess about um, really quite extraordinary e- extremes, particularly those that are global or even universal, um, I can then work myself to a place where um, I'm going to need some help dealing with the anxiety and worry that I'm experiencing because I have I've, I've sort of given myself over to it. Is that part of what we're talking about? Yeah, that's a, that's a part of it. And recognizing we actually have to learn the skills to manage worry. Mm-hmm. We don't come knowing how to do that. We have to learn what to do with it. And scripture gives us that outline of like, we're going to have to trust God with it. But that's easy to say, much more difficult to do. And as we become a more global society where we see all of the stuff that's happening, not only in our own lives and in the lives of the people we know, but in the world at large, there are so many more things that our brain can become preoccupied with and worry about. It makes it much more difficult to manage. Uh, Gene Holdhouse and I are going to return to this conversation. We're going to dig into the contents of the book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. Uh, we're going to talk about how we think and what we, affect, what we think affecting anxiety, as well as social environments, our view of God. And then we're going to talk through some strategies for dealing with worry and anxiety. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation now with Jean Holthouse, we're talking about her new book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. Um, Jean, let's just jump into the book. Um, So chapter four is entitled, How We Think and What We Think Affect Anxiety. Talk with us about the role of uh, of what we're thinking about in terms of what we're feeling, um, particularly when it comes to anxiety and worry. Sure. So a a lot of what creates anxiety for us is our thought patterns um, and how we think about a situation. So if I'm going to, let's say, go take a test and in my head, the thought process is, oh, I'm going to do poorly. What if I bomb this? And that's the thought process. It's going to create a lot of extra anxiety that really is going to make it difficult to take the test versus if my thought process is more along the lines of, okay, I've studied, I'll do my best. I'll deal with the outcome when it happens. Um, That's going to make me less anxious. Um, And those thought processes, and it doesn't just about a test, it's about what if my kids turn out wrong, what if I um, get fired from my job, all of those different things that we can have thoughts about that have nothing to do with the moment we're currently in, or they're how we think about the moment we're currently in, and do we believe that we can handle that moment with God, or do we feel like bad things might happen and we're not going to be okay? All of that affects the level of anxiety that we feel. Okay, so the chapter concludes with um, this sort of survey, self-survey, self-diagnostic thing about my attachment style. Um, describe attachment mm-hmm. style and then descri- describe this instrument, because I thought this was particularly interesting. 
So in the course of our life, from from birth on, we are attaching first to our parents and also to God and then to those other people around us. And the way we attach to them and, and the atta- way they attach to us determines what we think about ourselves. Do we see ourselves as able to handle the things of life or not able to handle the things of life? And then do we see other people as people who will be there for us or people who won't be there for us? And that happens in our relationships with people, but that then translates into our relationship with God as well. And if I see myself, if I if I attach to people and they give me the message, you're okay, you can handle it, I'll be there for you. I form what's called a healthy attachment to other people and to to God as well. But if I kind of learn that either I can't depend upon myself because I'm not really competent, or I can't depend upon others because maybe they'll be there for me, maybe they won't, then I'm going to be much more anxious. And I'm going to be either trying to kind of hunker down and do it all myself without trusting anybody else, or I'm going to be afraid to do it myself because I think of myself as someone who's not competent and capable. Either way, that's going to create much more anxiety for me than if I believe I can handle the things that God has given me with him. And I can depend upon others to be there for me, including God. So I'm not in it alone. So as I was, uh, considering some of these questions, in addition to sort of asking them of myself, it actually made me, like my heart went out to some people um, I know, uh, people older than me, people younger than me, um, in whose lives I have some influence. And I thought to myself, wow, this is um, this is true of them or not true of them in a way that it is, you know, not true of me. And so how do I, like, I, it was, it was, it was a, a way of sort of getting to a place of greater sensitivity that because I'm wired the way I'm wired, I assume others are wired that way, too. I assume they should be as trusting as I am or they should be as, as you know, easily accepting of God's way and God's will as I am. But they're approaching those conversations from um, a, a completely different set of life experiences and, um, and, and even genetics and all of those things. And they are not who I am in this conversation. And so anyway, it was very... This was a precious gift in terms of helping me understand some people who do experience a lot of anxiety and worry in situations where I do not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really important to remember that people arrive where they are for reasons. They're not just there mm-hmm. because that's a fun thing, particularly if you're anxious and direct recognize that we all come from life experiences. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't intervene in them and that he doesn't want to transform those experiences. But we come with a set of experiences from our childhood childhood and from our early adulthood that form how we look at things. And everybody's are unique. So it's important to stay curious about other people rather than make assumptions about other people. Absolutely. Um, The next chapter is on social environments and how those affect anxiety. And then there's a chapter on our view of God. We've touched briefly on that. Let's jump to strategies for dealing with worry and anxiety. Um, If we were going to employ one strategy today, what, um, what would be number one on your list for people to consider? I think the first thing we have to start with is staying in the moment we're actually in. And that is really important because God only gives us what we need for the moment we're actually in. And so a lot of our anxiety stems from taking what God's given us for this moment and trying to figure out how in the world we're going to use it for all of those what ifs that might happen in future moments. And it overwhelms us because he's only given us what we need for the moment. It's, It's like the Israelites in the desert. He only gave them the manna for the day. And the manna they had for the day didn't work for the next day. And so they had to trust him for every moment. But that means you have to be aware of when are you in the moment and when are you in your head living someplace else that is either the 
past and, oh, I wish I had done or hadn't done, or the future of the like, what if? When we stay in that present moment and we just be aware of what's happening right now, what can, and you can use your senses to do that. What can I see? What can I hear? What can I feel? What can I touch? And what can I taste? Because those are the only things that are actually in this moment. Everything else is either the future or the past. And so we have to recognize that we have to kind of bring ourselves back to this moment. And we're not very good at it as adults. If you look at little little kids, they are really, really good at it. They are only in the moment they're in. Um, But then we learn to worry about sorts of other things. And so we kind of have to go back and learn some lessons from them about being in that present moment. And they are totally engrossed in whatever they're playing with in that moment. And we have to kind of get back to that place. So we're going to um, seek to stay grounded and live fully uh, in the in the current moment. And then um, the next chapter is really the second practical tool, um, and that is letting go of judgment. Wow. I would say this is a um, <clears throat> this is a course in a spiritual discipline <laughs> and a spiritual experience. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, because, mm-hmm. wow, this is this is hard. So talk with us about letting go of judgment and why that's so important um, to sort of overcoming anxiety and worry. Sure. All of us would probably agree. Scripture says don't judge. And so we kind of think about that as the big stuff, like I'm, you know, condemning somebody else. But a judgment is any time we take an opinion we have or a feeling we have and we label it a fact. Um, And the reality is the only person that knows ultimate truth is God. And he asks us to come to him and he will tell us what it is. But he doesn't ask us to decide what it is on our own. Um, And when we start doing that, things like I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I'm fat, all of those things that we say to ourselves or we say about other people. And the problem with that is we're either making ourselves less than someone else or we're making someone else less than. And anytime we're doing that, it creates angst because we assume other people are doing that to us, too. And so then we're walking around trying to control what they think of us and trying to manage what we think of us. And trying to figure out, are we better than or worse than someone else? And it creates a ton of anxiety for us. Yeah, and part of this is just getting to the place where I just count those. Like, right, like I just start by being aware that I'm doing it um, and how frequently I'm doing it. All right, and then let's talk about um, what it means to be competent for life. Yes, and that doesn't mean competent in ourselves because any of us, if we look at just ourselves, we're like, yeah, nope, not so much competent. And then, um, so it's recognizing I'm competent with God, to do all things. Um, And then realizing, wait a minute, competent doesn't necessarily mean that I have to know all the answers myself. It means that I know how to get answers. So like I'm competent to own a car, not because when I raise the hood of the car, I know anything about what's going on under there. Because beyond the fact that that's an engine, I really don't know what's going on under there. But I do know how to call the mechanic. And I know how to tell him something doesn't sound just right. And I know that I need to take my car in for regular maintenance. So then I'm competent Um, We tend to think about competence means I have to know it all instead of I know how to access what I need to figure it out. And if I view myself with God as being capable of handling the things that come at me in life, then I don't have to always be trying to predict what those things are going to be and kind of figure out the answer before I get there. Because I can trust that as it comes at me, God and I will figure out what to do and God will give me what I need and I will take what he gives me and I can use it effectively. I love that you lay these out as skills, and then you give us ways to build these skills, um, and I, that's, just, that's so empowering. Um, uh, my listeners know that I love appendices, and so I thought the feeling words appendix, uh, uh, appendix was really great. Feeling words, I think, are, are increasingly difficult for many people to access. I could you know, ask 
I, I ask a kid who's, you know, who's on the spectrum, how are you feeling? And they just don't have words for that. And so I actually thought this list was really, really helpful, um, identifying a wider range of feelings than that which we you know, ordinarily talk about. So thank you for that as well. What a delight. Um, Jean Holdhouse, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. If we could send people one place online to find you, where would that be? Managing ManagingAnxiety.com. ManagingAnxiety.com. Jean, thank you so uh, much for being with us. I said it wrong. What? Say that again? It's Managing Worry and Anxiety. It's ManagingWorryAndAnxiety.com. I'm sorry. I, oh, the whole I got book title. Great. ManagingWorryAndAnxiety.com. The whole book title. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We appreciate your being here today. Thank you. We'll be right back. So when we survey what's going wrong, uh, going wrong, <laughs> going on around the world today, um, we we see what's happening in relationship to the coronavirus, uh, certainly not contained to China, but um, growing there as well. Um, we got some chaos going on in Europe, the Irish elections, and then also uh, a major change in Germany in terms of leadership that you're going to want to know about. Dr. David Aikman will be here. Oh, and some skirmishes or tension on the Turkish-Syrian border. Wow. I mean, we've got all kinds of things. All right. Dr. David Aikman will be back, editor of Godspeed Magazine. We're not going to worry nor grow anxious about these things, but we are going to discuss them. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Locato. We are all made in God's image and in his likeness. Sin has distorted this image, but it has not destroyed it. Our moral purity has been tainted But do not think for a moment that God has rescinded his promise or altered his plan. He still creates people in his image to bear his likeness and reflect his glory. As we fellowship with God, read his word, obey his commands, and seek to reflect his character, something wonderful emerges. We say things God would say. We do things God would do. We forgive, we share, and we love. In time, an image begins to appear. God's goal is simply to rub away anything that is not of Him so the inborn image of God can be seen in us. Because God's promises are unbreakable, our hope is unshakable. This is Max Locato. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me again today, Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. Welcome back, sir. Carmen, thank you. Nice to be on the program. Well, let's, uh, whew, we have a lot of ground to cover today. So let's start in, uh, in China. We have a rise in cases, not only those that are confirmed to have the coronavirus, but we have a, a really um, exceedingly high number of uh, people in critical condition um, and then 908 confirmed deaths. We have 66 new cases aboard this cruise ship, which is in quarantine, um, and 11 Americans among those 66 new cases. So in terms of, uh, you know, you know, frankly, you already know this about Americans, but we only really start to care when it starts to affect people who we could imagine might be our neighbors or our kids or our friends. Um, talk with us about the spread of this disease and your experience historically uh, in terms of other kinds of pandemics. Well, first of all, there was one American who died of the disease in China today. That 
the latest news item, which is quite unusual because you would assume Americans living in China would probably be younger and fairly fit. And uh, people who are in relatively good physical condition usually have better resistance to the virus than, say, older folk or those who have some kind of um, existing ailment. So I think uh, we're going to see more people, unfortunately, pass away because of this. Um, they've had, I think, eight cases in the UK. And uh, it, it's funny, if you look back at the cases that are confirmed, it turns out that there was a, a British businessman in Singapore. He obviously contracted it from somebody who'd come from China. He came back then, infected the whole chalet in a ski resort in France where he and his friends were staying. So immediately, eight people in that chalet all came down with the virus. So it requires extremely little contact to infect people around you. And you may not have any symptoms whatsoever while you're doing it. Yeah, so I think when we when we imagine oh, where we might find ourselves um, on occasion to be in contact with somebody, it's not necessarily somebody who was in China, right? This businessman was in contact when he was in Singapore with people who uh, had been in China. But the people in the chalet in France probably didn't make that two-step connection in terms of, hey, is there any risk of being with my friend skiing in France? Yeah, I mean, that's it. You, you, you start having to be suspicious of people who've been in Singapore or some other part of the world, let's say Hong Kong, where many Chinese are and might have infected these contacts that you have. So it's a, a very baffling situation. And the Chinese authorities, the Communist Party, is really in the soup about this because... For example, this extraordinary doctor, Li Wenjiang, in uh, in uh, Hunan, who first warned that this virus was very dangerous and was spreading, and he was absolutely told to shut up. And the authorities came after him, and the communists said, "If you if you say any more about this, you'll be in serious trouble." So the Chinese authorities had at least 10 days advance notice, maybe two weeks, where they could have started taking precautions to prevent the virus spreading as wildly as it subsequently did. Well, we're certainly going to be people who are um, who are praying that God would uh, intervene in ways that, uh, you know, would be significant. We're also going to be people who are what I call situationally aware um, there is a tech manufacturing concerns um, and, the, and concerns out this morning, at least by Bloomberg, that the coronavirus outbreak is going to cost the global economy more than $280 billion in the first quarter of this year. Um, and that is, uh, that is a significant number. And so I know that there are concerns about um, automobile manufacturing plants around the world who will not have access to parts. I mean, on and on and on. The cascading effect of this 
in terms of the economy is significant. Hey, David, let's pivot. Um, let's pivot from China to Europe. I want to talk both about uh, what's going on in Ireland and what's going on in yeah. Germany. Let's start with the Irish election. Uh, excuse me, Irish elections. Bring us up to speed. Well, this is extraordinary because the Sinn Féin is the most left-wing party in the Irish Republic. And, of course, as you'll probably, most of your listeners are well aware, they were associated with the IRA violence in what is called the Troubles, the serious uh, sectarian violence in the late 60s and early 70s, which results in a lot of deaths. So the IRA has obviously been associated with, um, well, Sinn Féin has been associated with the IRA for years, which is why the Fine Gael, which is the current governing party, and the Fine Foil, which is the main opposition, uh, they resolutely said they would never enter into coalition with Sinn Féin. Well, guess what? In the election that just happened, Sinn Féin got the most number of votes. It got about 24%, whereas the other two parties got about 22% each. So all of a sudden, you have a whole bunch of millennials who don't even remember what the troubles were and who are just dazzled by the sort of cheaper rent policies that the Sinn Féin has been advocating. The Sinn Féin is both nationalistic, Republican, and very left-wing. And its economic policies, I think, would be suicidal for Ireland. But these youngsters, they don't know anything about that. So they just uh, went on board for all the, the promises of uh, cheap housing, government paid for uh, housing, and so forth. So. It could be we're in for another election in another few months so that Sinn Féin can actually field a large enough number of candidates to get 80 seats in the Irish Parliament at oil. We'll just have to see how it works out. Which would mean they don't have to form a coalition with anyone. At this point, they would need to form a coalition with someone. Yes, at this point, mm -hmm. um, they're in no position to do anything except uh, agree to a coalition arrangement with one of the other two parties, only one of which, the Fine Gael, seems moderately inclined to have talks with them. So it's going to be a stalemate in quite a few days or weeks, I think. All right. Uh, David Aikman and I are going to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a situation in Germany. Germany's uh, Angela Merkel's designated successor quit, surprisingly, after some far-right election results. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I see you dressed in So over here on our side of the pond, David, uh, we have people running for president. In fact, the former vice president of the United States saying things like, hey, those who say the tree of liberty is watered with the blood of the patriots. That's a great line, I guess. But the fact is, you're going to if you're going to take on the government, you're going to need F-15s with Hellfire missiles. There's no way your AK-47 is going to take care of you. <laughs> uh, so we... We have our own craziness going on over here in terms of an impending presidential election. Um, what happened in Germany 
um, in terms of the election results and then and then tell us who this individual is about whom most of us will be completely unaware, this person who would be Angela Merkel's designated successor. Well, her name is Anne-Margaret Kramp-Farrenbauer, which is a name that you can forget almost as soon as it's come out of your mouth. Uh, she's become the leader of the Christian Democratic Party, and uh, she's also currently the defense minister. And... Uh, there are many in the party who uh, wanted her to be gotten rid of because she appeared to call for the expulsion from the party of the domestic intelligence chief. And so there's really quite a split in the top of uh, the Christian Democratic Union party politics as they all try to figure out how to go along with it and whether there are any security issues that they have to deal with. So as soon as you say the Christian Democratic Party, I will just say that there's people here in the United States that are having a a challenging time reconciling some of those words and concepts. So just talk with us about the platform of the Christian Democratic Party and then maybe um, the opposition that is to the right of them. Well, the Christian Democratic Union, the CDU, is the uh, conservative political party in Germany that has produced several German chancellors. And uh, then there's the Christian Socialist Union, which is more left-wing, and, of course, the Social Democratic Party, which is currently in the main opposition, but has also produced German chancellors in in the past. German politics is a tussle between the centre-right and the centre-left. And the centre-right under Angela Merkel has been in charge for several years now. But now you have uh, a lot of confusion over the designated successor to Mrs. Merkel, and you have a real problem of instability around. I think Germany will actually weather this particular storm, but it just goes to show that even in a political, in a country where the political institutions are very stable and have been for years as they are in Germany, some things can suddenly fall off the shelf and cause big trouble. All right. And then um, I'll just admit, David, that, you know, we can only pay attention to so many things uh, at, at a time. And many of us have sort of taken our eye off of what is happening on the Turkish-Syrian border. What do we need to know about that very volatile patch of earth? Well, what's happened is that the Syrian government, with incredible military support from Russia, who have sent not only troops, or they're not literally Russian army troops, but they're sort of mercenaries paid for by the Syrian government, and tremendous air power have been pounding Idlib province, which is in the northwest of Syria, close to the Turkish border. And not only have you got um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees from this crushing display of military might, but you have a situation where the Syrian government is getting very close to 
actually involving Turkey directly in hostilities. And that would create even more instability in the whole area of Syria than we've already seen. Um, the Syrian situation um, is is complex, and I think that for many of us, you know, it's hard for us to imagine uh, an internal conflict that has gone on as long as this one, um, and right. and yet is so heavily influenced by outside forces. Do you see? Yes. Uh, well, what what do you see? What do you see uh, as a path forward? for a, a restoration of uh, of Syria in terms of um in terms of a hope-filled future well first of all you would have to have a Syrian body politic which was generous to all different points of view as opposed to the regime of the dictator uh, Bashar al-Assad who has ruled his country since his father died decades ago so you need to have a, a recognizably sort of intelligent Syrian body politic. Then you'd have to get various foreign powers, particularly the Iranians, who have a lot of bases in Syria, and the Russians, who have two or three important bases. You'd have to get them to agree to stay out. And you would need to get the Turks to decide not to have any forays into Syria from their own country, which is next door. It's a very, very perplexing situation. The reason being that Syria has never been a united country, a country with a recognizable national identity. It's been an assemblage of different um, ethnic groups, people like Kurds, uh, different uh, Islamic sects, the Shiites and the Sunni. And so you haven't had a great national unity tradition that anybody could unite behind. So you really need a statesman and a statement-like political movement to provide the focus for serious uh, structural reform in country. All right. Well, that then uh, shall be our plea to the Lord. Um, David Aikman, thank you so much as always for joining us today. Uh, we, we always look forward to it. Uh, have a blessed week. Carmen, thank you so much. Same to you. Thank you. We'll be right back. So uh, I had a conversation yesterday with an eighth grader. Um, and it was a conversation about the Trinity, which I know maybe you're not having a lot of conversations with 14-year-olds about the Trinity, but, you know, they come up every once in a while. Uh, this person um, noted, she noted that we talk a lot uh, about God the Father, and we talk a lot about Jesus. And she said, but I would really like to know more about the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, that is great. Let's, uh, let's, let's talk about getting to know that third member of the Trinity. I said, I have a friend who once described the Holy Spirit as the shy member of the Trinity. I said, so if you were going to get to know somebody who is shy, you know, how might you go about that? And she said, well, you know, with shy people, sometimes you have to, you have to be more quiet and you have to, you have to wait a little longer and you have to, um, you know, you have to ask them questions that, uh, that provide them an opportunity to talk about themselves. And I said, those are great ways to get to know the Holy Spirit of the living God. Let's be a little more quiet 
um, and let's uh, let's approach him in prayer. So there you go. Get to know the Holy Spirit, shy member of the Trinity today. Uh, thanks for listening. We love having you. With- thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.